If you have been with us, you know we've been studying through the book of 1 John. If you haven't been with us, we're studying through the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to 1 John. Um, the words, as always, are on the screen, but I, I do encourage you to go there in your own Bible. I think um, it helps encourage us to even know where the passage is, um, to get us in the mindset, man, we come on Sunday mornings and, and we're fed, but we, wanna, we need to be, we're called to be feeding ourselves through the Word of God um, over the course of the week. So to, to see the context, to make sure what I'm saying, what I'm putting on the screen is, is what you see in your Bible, and if there are questions that they differ, we want to talk about that and, and, and open that up. So as you're flipping to First John, it's really close to the end, I want to say that the theme today is they'll know we are Christians by our love. Today, we're going to make the argument that John, John is going to make the argument through the inspired word of God that true believers, th- those who really are children of God, they love one another. And in fact, we, we look here at the, very, at the outset here in 1 John, and my well, clicker not responding. There we go. 1 John chapter 3, it says this, For this is the message you heard from the beginning we should love one another. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. If you've been with us, we said that the purpose of 1 John, why did John write this epistle? He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I've written this. He tells us why. I've written this so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you may know you have eternal life. He says, I wrote this to you so that you as a believer would know that you have eternal life, that you are a son or a daughter of God. And he's given us in this book three tests so that we can see if we are children of God. Test number one was the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe the Jesus of the Bible? The second test was the moral test. Are you walking in holiness as he is holy by the grace of God. We don't walk in holiness in our own strength. And then number three, and what we're going to look at deeper this morning, is the social test. It says, do you love one another? Do you love one another? For the family of God does. Now, it's no secret, cat's out of the bag, I was born into the Frankino family. Here's photographic evidence. Look at that mustache. It could save the world. So here am I as a baby, okay, born to... Scott and Carmen Franchino, and then as it started growing up, had siblings come onto the scene, and as you can see, we look just like our mother and father. Um, then we go a little bit older, and, and this was, I feel like my clickers not wanting to respond here. This is our awkward phase, okay? I think all of us have regrets, right? Um, haircuts, outfits. And then here's one, as we got, then we became teenagers, my mom decided it'd be a great idea to coordinate us, our outfits with our dog. Um, so <laughs> here's our matching, our matching scheme. Um, and, then, and then finally, here we are just a couple weeks ago, our family has doubled, um, no thanks to me. And uh, here, here we are. Um, and, and, and as you see through the, the years, What's so evident is that I am a Frankino. You see that through my own physical traits, right? Like I have the Frankino and Garling, um, my mom's maiden name. Um, the Frankino nose. I've got the Frankino smile. You know, we, we all of us have kind of darker, beautiful olive skin, dark, thick hair. Um, you know, Greek godlike physique. This is natural. I didn't even. <laughs> Didn't even have to work for it. Um, I know. But, but not only physical traits, but behavior, characteristics. Like, 
you know when a Frankino is in the room, right? Like, there's no doubt. We're really loud. You're like, I know. I know you guys are loud. And we never stop talking. We're always talking with our hands. Like, whenever we're very Italian thing for us to do. We have an unhealthy obsession with spaghetti, um, and it really is unhealthy. Um, and we all love sports. There are things about me, both, both in my appearance and in my behavior, that indicate that I really am a Frankino. Now, over time, there are going to be moments in my life when I'm not consistently exhibiting those traits. Like there might be a two-minute period where I'm quiet. And you wouldn't automatically say, oh, he must not be a Frankino. He just, he just lost his Frankino-ness, right? Like if I ever pass up on an extra plate of spaghetti, it's not like instantly, no, he must not truly be a part of that family tree. But if over time I'm consistently showing that I'm nothing like Frankino. It's like I'm an extreme introvert, right? And I, and I, and I have a hatred for things that they love, or, or maybe even, beha- you know, the looks-wise. Like I sprout bright red hair, you know, and I, and I develop a weird French accent. And it's like, maybe... Now, what you wouldn't suspect is maybe he lost his Frankino-ness. No, we know that doesn't work like that, right? Once a Frankino, always a Frankino. But what, what you, you might look at, we, we need to go to the lab and do some DNA testing. Maybe he was never a Frankino to, be, to begin with. And, and, and the illustration here points to us that being believers, it, it doesn't mean that, that if there's like a brief period of time, if we're not loving people every second of the day, if we ever have a moment where we exhibit, you know, non-love towards someone else, we go, boom, that person must not be a child of God, or they they lost their status as a child of, of God. But if over time there is this habitual, consistent, when we had our, our Greek lesson with Pastor Larry a few weeks ago, if consistently we're not exhibiting that love in, in, our, in our lives, First John is, is very blunt here. He says, we're born of God. We're going to look and act like our Father. And if, if Jesus is in us, then we're going to look like him. And if we don't love, then, then we're not his kids. And so it's really important then we, that we look this morning at what love is, what love is, is not. And then the super important question for us, well, how then do we love? And how do we exhibit that we are a part of the family of God? So first point here, what love is not? We want to look at, at love and hate. Now, John begins by showing us what love is not. He says, love one another and don't be like Cain. Okay, you remember Cain? And at first glance, we're going to look at verse 12. This looks like one of the most unnecessary, most obvious verses in in the Bible. He says here in verse 12, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Okay, newsflash. Murder is bad. Right? Just don't, don't kill. All right? Okay, John, got it. I won't kill Jeremy. Check. Like, next. What's the next? But but let's, let's slow down, because we know that all Scripture is useful. It's profitable for our teaching, for our, our rebuke, and, and so that we can show ourselves as approved workmen. So why does John tell us this? Well, 
You remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain is the first human being ever to be born on this planet. And he murders his brother. Not a banner start for the human race, is it? And he kills his brother Abel. Why, Why does he murder Abel? Well, John tells us right here. He says, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why did he kill Cain? He was angry. Why did he kill Abel? Sorry, because he was angry. And instead of acknowledging his own shortcomings, instead of looking inside, why did God reject my offering? He, he chooses to be angry. And he chooses envy and bitterness toward his brother, which leads him to murder. Now, if you look at at verse 13, he goes on to say, do not be surprised, my brothers. We're looking for application here. Okay, what does it have to do with us? Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. And you go, aha, there's the application. We are able, our works are right, chis. The world is Cain, their works are evil, and they're jealous of me. They look at me and go, oh, I wish I could be like Justin, and they hate me. I am awesome, and the world wishes they could be me. All right, thanks, Justin. That was a great pump me up. You guys head to dinner. We'll see you at your buckets. Have a good one, all right? Now, there, there is truth here. The world will hate us because we are believers, but I don't think that's John's point here because he goes right on to verse 14, and look at what he says. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. I do not believe he's bringing up Cain and Abel to show us that the world is hating us. He says, do not be like the world. Show that you have moved from death to life because in the death realm there is hate and in the, love realm, in the, in the, in the light realm of God there is love. Do not be like Cain Show that there is life in you and love one another. Now, even here, we look at, fast forward to the second half of verse 15, where he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And again, we could say, okay, I don't murder, and I show that I'm a child of God. I can do that. I can refrain from killing other people. But it's the first half of verse 15 where the conviction lies. Look at what he says. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer, a.k.a. no hater, has eternal life residing in him. And now all of a sudden this is brought to our level. And, and, and John, I mean, you know the famous words of Jesus. If you have hate in your heart for someone, it is the same as murder in the eyes of a holy God. And that's what matters. In, in the eyes of God, the way he sees things, that the way that, that things mar his glory, that, that, that transgress his holiness, he says murder and hatred are equally offensive in my eyes. Now, do they have different earthly consequences? Yes. But they are just as offensive and just as destructive in the eyes of God. And here is the thing about hatred in the church. It is so stinking subtle. It is so 
so subtle. You, you see, if people were being murdered in our church, like, it would be pretty easy to detect, right? Like, this guy over here, he's killing people. Like, we need to not let him come to church anymore. He's really hurting our attendance, right? But hatred, and, and the, one of the things that makes hatred so dangerous, and one of the reasons that we're so good at, at harboring that hatred is because we have been taught to disguise it. Whether implicitly or explicitly, we have been taught to hate, hide hatred, and even make it look spiritual. And, and here's how, see, the, the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, um, the, the fruit of the Spirit is actually singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And, and then Galatians 5, he unpacks what that love looks like. Love is its kindness and its patience and its peace and its joy and its self-control. And, and what we often do is we hide our hatred in false fruit, and we make it look like spirituality. Here's, here's what I mean. So, for example, um, false peace. This, this is what we'll do. We'll say, we'll be talking to somebody, and we'll say, well, oh, I can't say anything about them. I got to keep the peace. I don't want to rock the boat, right? We, we want to make sure we all kind of get along, but then behind their backs, we gossip about them, and we rip them apart, and, and, and we do this, right, when they're not looking. And we feed the beast of hatred in our, our hearts. And I'm telling you, it starts in, in, in our minds. How are we thinking about people? Because, because then, you know, then we'll go back and face to face and we'll paint the smile on or everything's all right. We all love each other. Look, when we're all in the same room, like no murder here. It's all good. That's not real unity. That is, that is false fruit. Hey, what about self-control? We'll say, and I love this one, it's one of my favorites, we'll do this in prayer request time. Pray for, you know, Penelope or whatever. Um, let's just say she really needs prayer right now. Like, that's all I'm saying. Not going to say anything more. Just really, really be praying for the people and go, what? Why? What's wrong with that? Oh, I can't. Well, they asked. I can't lie. It's not good to lie. So let me just fill you in on what's going on with Penelope. And before you know it, we've confused gossip and prayer, right? And how often do we see this? I found this cartoon. Google Images hooked me up. Lord, please help our sister Mary with her secret drinking problem. See, it's not gossip if our head is bowed. We are the kings and queens of passive, aggressive hatred. And what this does is it feeds division within the body of Christ. It's hatred. It's murder. And one of the, one of the, more, one of the ways that, main ways that hatred expresses itself in more of kind of a politically correct fashion that we wouldn't initially detect it is envy. Okay? Like this little guy right here. If only I had more. You think Cain, Cain was jealous. He was envious of his brother standing with God. That, that Abel's works were accepted, but his weren't. And I think one of the most damaging things that happens in the body of Christ is this envy that sneaks into our hearts. And we'll see it. I feel it. Like preachers envying other preachers. I'll be listening online to these sermons, and I'm like, man, I wish I could preach like that guy. Like, man, I wish I could go at it without any notes. That's impressive. 
you know? And, and then even locally, other preachers will be like, man, I wish I could do it like he does it. I wish he could have the skills that he has. And we as churches do this with other churches. Like, I wish that we had their building. I wish our septic tank worked all the time, right? Like, I wish that our numbers were as big as theirs on Sunday mornings. I wish our children, you know, it goes on and on. I wish I could sing like Lisa. I wish I could play the guitar like Justin. Um, No. I wish I, and it goes, work. What about in the area of work? Man, I wish I could be at home every night. I wish I didn't have to work on the slope. I, I, I wish I had that paycheck. I wish, I wish I had gotten that promotion. I deserved it more than him. What about at home? I wish my kids weren't always biting the other children. I wish my kids weren't always coloring on the wall like that perfect little angel baby over there. Man, I wish I had the grades that he had. Man, I wish I. Man, I wish I. And what comes of this is a deep resentment of others forms into our hearts, and it takes root as a bitterness. You see, Hebrews 12 speaks to this. It says, see to it. This is an urgent matter. See to it. Be attentive. This, this verb, this word is very emphatic in the Greek. See to it. Pay attention. Pursue this. That no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. There was this rose bush um, at New Tribes where I went to Bible school. This isn't an actual picture of it. I didn't take pictures of rose bushes when I was 20. Um, this is Google Images said, this looks close enough. And so there, there was this, it was beautiful, you know, it, it was harmless looking, this nice rose bush. We all loved the rose bush, pro rose bush. What we didn't realize was underneath there were these roots that had grown over the course of years and were spreading and were actually attacking the foundation of the school. And they, and they had to rip that poor little rose bush out by its roots because if not, the whole building was going to collapse. Now, that's dramatic. But what looked so harmless on the surface underneath was destroying. And see, so often we feed the hatred in, in our lives. And what seems so harmless, well, I said that about them. Yeah, but it's not a big deal. Yeah, I think of that I don't like them. But like that's not, and, and we kind of make these excuses and say it's just a rose bush. But underneath, The whole foundation is in peril, and we need to remove it by the root. This isn't just a hedging of rose bushes. If we don't get at the root, it will come back. This comes down to the heart of things. We need Jesus. We need a heart transplant, not just behavior modification. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I said, Lord, is there anybody that I'm harboring this bitterness toward in my own life? Like, are there areas, and, and it was amazing to, and difficult as the Lord convicted me, and there was repentance that needed to happen, and there was someone I needed to go to and confess that I had held on to this bitterness for years. And I had to say, I am wrong, and I'm sorry, and I love you. And to, to see then their response and the reconciliation that happened And it was beautiful. Hatred is murder. And all of us experience this. I don't want you walking away paranoid this morning that, man, if there's ever a second of unlove in my life, then I've been yanked out of the family of God. John said in chapter 1, he says, 
if we claim to be without sin, we are liars. We're not called to, per, to, to, to our own efforts driving us to perfection. That is not the call as the believer. That's why we call it growth. That's why we need Jesus. This is going to take time. It's messy and it's grace-fueled. But if over the course of time we're not feeling that conviction and we're not led to repentance when, when we said in chapter 1 when the light shines on us and it exposes our sin, if there's no conviction or repentance, look at what he says here, okay? He says, we know we've passed the death to life because we love one another. Anyone who doesn't love remains in, in death. No murderer has eternal life residing in them. John doesn't pull any punches here. He says there's no life in you if you're not exhibiting the love of God. So that's what love is not. It is not hatred. It is not bitterness. It is not envy. So what is love? Look at love and sacrifice. Look at verse 16. This is where it gets good. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know. You want to know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, likewise, ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and our sisters. You see, if the ultimate act of hate is to take a life, then the ultimate act of love is to give your own life for another. This is not, it's not just the absence of bitterness that we're to get at here. Like, don't be jealous. Like, don't hate. Don't gossip. Because that's a focus on our sin. We're never called to focus on our sin. We're called to focus on our Savior. And it's not just the absence of, of the sin. It's the presence of a sacrificial life that you and I have been called to. Now, oftentimes, we, we simply leave this as a willingness to die for someone. And I think there are many of us today who say, I will die for someone. Like, if someone's coming at my nephew, Ray, and they're going to try to kill him, you're going to have to come through me first, right? Like, well, actually, you probably have to come through Jeremy first, but then I'm next in line. And it's one thing, it's one calling to be willing to die for someone. You've heard it said, it's not just the call to die for someone, to be willing, because you can do that once. You got one shot at that act of love. But daily, we're called to live for the sake of other people and to die to ourselves daily. You see, verse 17, he says, I'm going to flesh this out for you. I'm going to show you what this looks like. Verse 17, he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So if you see someone who's in need and you have the ability to meet that need and you don't, how can God be in there? Because if, if, if we know Jesus came to this earth as our great example, and not only did he die for our sins, but every single day he had the crystal clear mission that I am here to seek and save the lost. And every breath that he took, every action that he did was for other people because he knew all of his needs were met by the Father and he was now free to live for others. And, he, and he's, he calls us beyond, he says, here we have pity on them, but then he takes it one step further in verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. He says, don't just pay lip service. 
do it. And I was thinking in my life of examples of people who live like this, who are, have been a great example and encouragement to me in this area of, of generosity and love. And I was thinking about, this is my friend Katie, um, went to Bible school with her at Rosebush School. Um, and Katie now lives in Seattle. I was, this was last summer. I was visiting her on my baseball trip in surprisingly rainy Seattle. Um, I don't know if this is my, a pirate impersonation. I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing there. But it was incredible to kind of catch up with her and, and kind of hear from her life and what God had been doing. And here's, here's a lady, here's a friend, a dear sister in the faith who lives for other people. And she would tell me stories. Katie never has any money. And it's not because she's foolish with her finances. Um, it's because she prioritizes people over paychecks. And to watch the way that she says, man, this isn't mine. Like, this is, this is God's giving it to me, and I want, and it's, it's not forced. God loves a cheerful giver, and nothing delights her more than meeting the needs of people around her. She was telling me this story when she took her um, worship team at church. She's ministering to this smaller, growing church in Seattle, and she took her ministry team out to pizza. She just wanted to show them some, some practical love and treat them to some pizza. And when the check came, it came and, and it was $60, and she realized, I don't actually have $60, like, period, right? And, and so she, she says, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but, but God's going to provide. And, and so this guy sitting next to her, he says, hey, I want to pitch in. He didn't know what was going on. He said, I want to pitch in, and he hands her a $20 bill. Well, she had 40 on her person, and now with that 20 it made an even 60 and she was able to pay for the pizza, now, now, my call today is not, okay, go to Pizza Boys and come short of cash and God will just have somebody sit next to you and hand you the, that's not where I'm going. But the point is, her life was lived, is lived to give to others. And she truly finds greater joy in giving and receiving. And I thought, man, I am much better off financially than Katie but I see how tight-fisted I am with my, my money, my, my possessions, and I do it in the name of fiscal responsibility, right? Got to save up for the future. Got to provide. Now, yes, we have families. Like, we're called to provide for, for our loved ones, and I'm not saying you just literally spend every dime you have. Um, that's not the call. The call here is to a mindset. What we have is not ours in the first place. Freely we have received, freely to give. And we might think, all right, well, thanks, Justin. Another passage on giving. We got you, John. I'm going to make sure I'm a little bit more proactive about my tithing, and I'm going to bring on maybe even one of those, like, Compassion International kids or, you know, help with the meal the next time that we have someone with a baby in our family. This is, this is deeper than, than this. It's not just a call to just write a check and take care of it. This is a call to give our time, to give of our energy, emotional giving, to be involved in the messiness of other people's lives that we know and that God puts into our path. Like this life is not our own. And so often we kind of cling on to it. We say, it's my time and, and I need this. I need, I need, and, and, and we live this very self, I live this very self-centered lifestyle. Do we realize what we've been called to? Not just not being bitter and angry, 
but by living our lives for others. I, I ran across this, and it was it's so beautiful. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Like, even when I come to his throne, I'm not saying, God, I need this, and God, I need No, God, you have given me all that I need for life and godliness, but this neighbor, this, this dear brother or sister, they don't know you. And to plead on his behalf for the sake and the needs of others, because mine have already been met. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be, help me to live for others, that I may live like thee. I've convicted somebody. So love is not envy, bitterness, hatred, division, apathy toward others when we see a need. It is self-sacrificial giving. But I think when we examine this call, and then we look at our own lives, and we see how far short we come up, we ask ourselves, how do I do this? How do I do what God has called me to do? And this is where the third point comes in. What love does, how this whole thing works, love and grace. John knows that this bar that he set for us is, is, is impossibly high, and it can leave us feeling like spiritual failures. And so he writes verse 19. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. He says, you want assurance? You want, you want to know that you belong to the truth? You, you want to find rest in, in the presence of God? He says, here's where it's found. And he starts by saying in verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Another way to say this, First, first Corinthians, Paul says a similar thing. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, whether my heart or my conscience, and, and there, are, there are definitely similarities to the two, whether it's condemning me or it's clearing me and saying I'm vindicated. Either way, he says, I can't trust that. God is greater than my heart. God's the one who judges. God's the one who decides what is good and what is evil, what is right and, and what is wrong. See, all those, those pop songs, they tell you to follow your heart, right? Jiminy Cricket said, always let your conscience be your guide. Jiminy Cricket's full of malarkey. Right? As the elder said, that was the strongest word I could use there. So it's full of malarkey. Right? Gets it. Jeremiah says it this way. He says, no, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't just go, yeah, I think I got it, or no, I, I don't. God's the one that decides. He says he's greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. This word that I've put in all caps, it comes from the Greek, it's katanosis, gnosis meaning knowledge, all knowledge. He knows all things. Interestingly, the only other time that John uses this word is in his gospel. At the end of it, you remember the story in, uh, in chapter 21, Peter and Jesus are sitting at the beach, and this is the first time that Peter has seen Jesus since he had denied him three times and the rooster had crowed and he had betrayed his God. 
Jesus has risen from the dead, and he comes back, and he sits down with Peter, and he asks Peter three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this third time, he uses this word catanosis. He says, Lord, you know all things. Lord, you know my heart. You know all of my motives. You know all of my failures. You know everything. You know more than I do. You know that I love you. And Jesus' answer, he looks Peter in the eyeballs, and, and, and he says, yeah, Peter, I do know you. I, I know your failures. I know your shortcomings. In fact, I know the depths of your heart beyond what you know. And what he says is, deep down, I know that you believe in me. And I know that you love me. And there's, there's forgiveness and restoration. And we know there is because his call to Peter then is, he said, feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep. And he restores and uses this brash, brash man to build his church. And likewise, in our own lives, we can feel this guilt and this shame of harbored bitterness, of hatred, of jealousy, of, of gossip, of division. And we feel it, and it's real, and your heart whispers to you, Satan, he says, you're no good. You're a failure. You're a terrible person. Your sin is too deep. You are too dirty to go into the presence of God. In that moment, Jesus picks our chin up. He looks us in the eyeball. He says, I catanosis. I know everything. I know your heart. I know your failures. In fact, I, I know the depth of, of your, the wickedness in your, in your own flesh beyond what you will ever know. Praise God. But he says, I know that you're mine. I know that you believe me. And see, the, the true believer, back to chapter one, it's not sinless. But when there is conviction of sin, there is repentance. We look and we say, God, I see this the way you see it. And, and, and I, I, want it, I want to change. I don't want to continue to walk in the darkness. I don't want to continue to walk in the hatred and he forgives and he restores. And he goes on to say in verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, okay, once, once we've cleared this up, he says, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He says, once we've been restored, we can march boldly into his throne room and we can sit down on the lap of the king of kings and call him daddy. And he says, whatever you ask, you're going to receive. So why, how can we march so boldly into his presence? How can we receive whatever we ask from him? The, the, the words here, he says, because, here's why, we keep his commands and do what pleases him. You say, well, wait a second. Is this a call back to works? Is this a call to say we've got to obey and then we have access to God? That seems backwards from this justification by faith thing that we always preach. Well, we have to ask, what are his commands? What has God called us to do to receive this? And here is, to me, the most beautiful verse in, in this section. Verse 23. This is his command. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, 
and to love one another as he commanded us. The command is to trust another. The command is to believe in Jesus. And that first command is what allows us to do the second command. If we're not believing in Jesus, we can't love one another. You see, love has always been the command. Ever since day one, to bring it full circle, verse 11, he says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. This is, since, since this all started, since, since the beginning of time when I created the world, this was the message. Love one another, right? And, and now in the Old Testament with the Jewish people, God said, follow this law. He says, you want to be holy? It's always been. He said, this is, gonna, this is how we sum up the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these two things, you're fulfilling the law. You've kept the whole law. So he says, how do you do that? And he puts down this big old book of 613 commandments. He says, you keep this, every single one of these laws perfect, every day for your life, and you'll be holy. And you'll be loving your neighbor and loving me as I've called you to. But what God knew is that this is impossible. Because of sin in our flesh, none of us are able to keep these commandments. And that's why Galatians says the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to the way that we can love like he loves. And John says, let me introduce you to Jesus. And what Jesus did, and, and this, this is actually is cool. I found this online. I've made it tiny, but this is all of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And right across it is written, abolished at the cross. See, Jesus came and he took our punishment because we couldn't keep these commands, because we couldn't love and be holy as he's holy. And what he gave us was his righteousness. Jesus has perfectly kept the law. Jesus perfectly loves. And he says, here's the deal. If you believe me, if you come to me and trust me and quit trying to do it yourself and accept me, I am your righteousness. I am your love. See, you and I cannot muster this up on our own. It's not waking up tomorrow and say, I'm going to try harder to love Jesus. And, and we're not saying even, God, give me more power to love. We come to the cross. We receive his forgiveness. He restores us, but he does more than that. He actually makes us one with Jesus. And God, and this is, this is a spiritual mystery, he puts Jesus inside of us. We are one with him. And now, Jesus, who lives inside of us, loves through us. So we don't love like Jesus. We, with Jesus, love. Jesus now is our life. He is our love. We don't need more love. We need more Jesus. And here's John's point. He says, if, if you claim to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior, and, and you've been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You, you make that claim, but you show no love for your neighbor. You show no love for the people in your pew right now. We don't have pews in the church. You show no love for the people in this building, for your family. He says, you're lying. Because if, if Jesus is in you, then he's going to be expressed through you. This is, not, this is not saved by works. This is faith expressing itself through love. So where are you this morning? 
Maybe there are those in this room that, that need to repent like I did, and you see this bitterness in your heart. You, you see this anger toward another. You're experiencing this, this, this lingering, nagging envy. We are not to take this lightly. Hatred is murder. We cannot walk with God and hate a brother. And, and we're called, this says, do not let the sun set on your anger. If there's someone that we need to fix things with, we need to do it today. You need to, after the service, make a phone call. You need to go to somebody's house. You need to have that conversation. The reconciliation needs to happen today. And maybe you say, man, I, I, I don't think I'm even a part of the family of God. I don't know him. I don't, I don't know Jesus there's nothing, no, no more pressing decision to be made, and I encourage you to talk to me or talk to a brother or sister who does know him and is a part of that family. Or maybe you're on the other side and you've been beaten down by a bad conscience and you're, you're living with this shame and this guilt and Satan keeps just kind of driving this into your head and you say, I'm not worthy. Well, we're not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. We need him and we have all of him. And you need to be told by your God, I had a gnosis. I know everything. I know your heart. I know your mind. I want to end with this, this beautiful poem that I found. It basically just, it shows how, I mean, what love looks like in our lives, because sometimes that can be kind of a, kind of an abstract idea. He says, love is Jesus, and, and, and this is how it's manifested in our lives, and it shows how love is expressed through the fruit of the Spirit. It says, love is joy, joy is love exalting, and peace is love at rest. Patience is love enduring in every trial and test. Gentleness is love yielding to all that is not sin, Goodness is love and actions that flow from Christ within. Faith is love's eyes opened, the living Christ to see. Meekness, love not fighting, but bowed at Calvary. Temperance is love in harness and under Christ's control. For Christ is love in person and love Christ in the soul. Father, we, we cannot love. We, we don't have an ounce of love to offer apart from Jesus. And these things will never be reflected in our hearts if we go about it by our own efforts. Father, left in our own devices, in our own flesh, there is nothing but murder. There's nothing but hatred and envy and bitterness. And God, I've seen it in my own heart. And it's ugly and it offends your name. And we cannot walk with you when we walk in that. And what we've been called to, Lord, is impossibly high for us to do in our own strength. But, Father, you did not leave us in that state. But you sent your Son to this earth to be the great example of what sacrifice, what love and action looks like. And now, Father, this morning, you've not called us to imitate, but you've called us to be jars of clay, filled with the glory of God expressed in the person of Jesus and it's through those flawed cracks in our flesh that your light shines. 
Father, may this world know that we are Christians by the love that we show. May we overflow with the life of Jesus, with the generosity that he gave to us and that we now give to others. Father, may we repent when we are convicted of the hatred in our heart toward a brother. If there are those in this room today that need to go and repent, that need to go to a brother and be restored into that relationship, that need to confess their hatred, they need to confess their bitterness, that that would happen. That relationships would be restored, that love would happen, that you would be manifest in our lives so that your Father, our Father, would receive the glory that is due him. We love you because you first loved us. We need you, Jesus, and we thank God that we have you. It's in your name that we boldly approach the throne of grace, and we pray. Amen.